0: This week on The Futurists, Tracy follows.
1: I think the conclusion I've come to is that we have multiple selves, but we haven't ever really come to acknowledge that or we won't acknowledge that in the West. And the more we won't acknowledge that in the West, the more difficult it's going to be for us to exist in the plurality of these multiple worlds.
0: (laughs) Welcome back to The Futurists. I am your host, Brett King, and joining me in the hosting chair is Rob Terstek, coming all the way from L.A. How are you, Rob? Nice to see you again, world traveler. Yeah, we haven't done much. uh, Well, you know, know, we haven't done a lot together in the last few weeks because of the travel. I I must say, you know, it was uh, so... Um, torturous trying to get my <laughs> US visa sorted out. Um, you know, I mean, I haven't said a lot about it on the show. You and I've talked about it, but um, it took me many, many months just to get an appointment with the US consulate. I ended up having to fly to Jakarta to get my visa. You know, couldn't do it in the states, of course. You know, had to do it offshore. You Um, kind of got locked out, right? You were outside the states. Well, this is all because I'd had a working permit before. I'd had a residency visa for twelve years in the states. I've been working in the states for twelve years, and uh, um, you know, while there was a delay in processing, which is happening in all of the U.S. embassies around the world right now, um, um, you know, and and State Department getting your passport, all of that is delayed right now. Why? Well, maybe you know policy see in politics we you know we don't, who knows but so i thought in the meantime i could use an esta which is the electronic travel author, authorization but you know, there's certain entry points. If you come in using an ESTA when you've had a working visa, where they just ping you. So that's what happened to me, oh. unfortunately. So I needed to get a visa, but I couldn't even get the appointment. So it's not like I didn't want to be in the states. Um, it's not like I don't qualify for a visa. I just couldn't get the meeting at the US consulate as soon as I did it just took a few days and I had my passport with the new visa and I I flew straight back into town but um it was uh, it was very tough on on Katie you know during yeah. that period and I'm yeah. I'm uh you know conscious of that but I'm glad to be here now and uh, have that freedom of movement um and uh, yeah
2: well it's a very timely story because you're talking about trying to track down identity documents that yes. give you permission to enter the country and this week We have an expert on the show who's written a considerable amount and runs a podcast on the topic. Our guest this week is Tracy Follis. Tracy, welcome to The Futurists.
1: Hello, lovely to be here.
2: It's nice to have you here. Tell us a little bit about your book and your podcast, because we're curious to know about that. And maybe (laughs) you can help us uh, build on the concept of Brett's uh, passport control uh, issues.
1: I was just thinking that as Brett was saying, I was thinking, but what about his digital attributes? Why can't he just um, use those as proofs? Um You
2: know, they have your face scanned now at the airport. So it seems to me that the government already has this rich database about There are there are
0: there are six hundred federal databases in the US with facial recognition systems, I've been told by identity mm. people. So the And now one of
2: them can help you get back
0: in when right, you're right. Yeah. Well it's a policy expired. issue, not an identity issue in many respects. But yeah, sorry, Tracy.
1: No, not at all. It's um, uh, it's good to talk about these things with people who are really interested in my identity. I'm always trying to persuade and coerce other people. This is this is excellent. (laughs) Um, the book, the book I wrote in 2020 when I was sitting at my desk because I couldn't do anything else that year, and then it came out in the UK 2021 and in the states 2022, The Future of You. And I was asking the question, Can your identity survive the 21st century? Nobody really understood what I was talking about. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no answer that question. Um, but it was because I was already quite heavily absorbed in um the cha- the notion of a changing identity, our personal identity being utterly transformed in a digital or virtual world. Uh, in the sense that this is the effect of technologies on the notion of the self, selfhood, persons, personhood. And what did that mean for us going forward? And so when I was tackling the book, I chopped it into separate chapters, which were like, you know, Knowing You, which is about, as Brett's just been saying, authentication and verification, you know, connecting you, which is obviously uh, uh, around um, the, the connections we can make through virtual media, metaverse, immersive media, that sort of thing. Um, you know, preserving you uh, or destroying you, which is about our digital identity beyond death. Um, creating you, which is all about the ways in which we use media to, um, represent the self and perform the self, if you like, um, in, in certain ways. So, uh, there are many chapters and then I extended that out into a podcast, which, um, shockingly is called The Future of You. Um, which explores the same thing so um every fortnight we have um a couple of guests on like you do and just um discuss you know whether it's robot relationships or crypto and how that's going to help us with ownership of the the self or whether it's about uh, you know motion prints are they going to give us away in the metaverse are we are we going to not be able to preserve any sense of anonymity you know all these sorts of mm, things so mm, every week we do yeah I like that. Yeah. yeah, I spoke to um, Lewis Rosenberg about that because I'd read his piece um, about motion prints and uh, asked him to explain that. And that was fascinating because I just think it's one of those, all these invisible ways in which our identity is kind of, you know, tracked, monitored, analyzed. Um,
2: beyond it's a very big business. Itself.
1: Yeah. Oh, it's a, it's a very business. profitable yeah.
2: business. Yeah, you, know, you could say fundamentally, it's the business model of the commercial internet right now is uh, buying mm. and selling identities and tracing them. What's interesting to me about identity is that um, you might have an idea of who you are. Not everybody does, but you might develop an idea of who you are. But the way you define yourself in society is always relational. It's always in relationship to something else or someone else. And we don't tend to think about that too much. And we're kind of unconscious uh, as, we, as we move through society. But, you know, Brett's case is a good illustration of it. You your identity is nothing if you don't have a document issued by a government. Someone has to attest on your behalf. Some official entity has to attest that you exist and you are the person you say you are. You can say whatever you wish. Uh, you can represent yourself however you wish. But unless you have that attestation, it's not official. So we have an unofficial identity that we construct you know, yeah. through purchases and media and brands and so forth. Um, but the official identity is always issued by another party
1: absolutely it is um one of my early questions was how valid is that in the future because what happened to me was that i couldn't get in couldn't log into facebook and that's the first that's how the book starts i couldn't log into facebook didn't recognize my login details it asked me to prove i was me i scanned in my passport and Facebook told me that I wasn't Tracy Follows, which is hilarious, really, given the amount of content that was on my feed showing that I was Tracy Follows, I had all the connections and relationships that Tracy Follows has, blah, blah, blah. But for whatever reason. And this is when I was, I um I started thinking about the phrase, I'm not machine readable. And the fact that I wasn't yeah. machine readable meant that I wasn't. I wasn't... uh, Oh, I didn't exist in the world of Facebook, if you like. Um, And actually what happened was somebody had taken my... um Uh, Somebody had taken my identity and created a synthetic identity. And then I showed up in some weird ways on Instagram, having lots of new relationships I didn't know anything about. So, you know, it was a fascinating way in. And that was 2016 when that happened. And it Um, had really bugged me for a long time. And I was thinking, what does this all mean? Where are we all going? I can live without Facebook, but that's not the end of it. That's just the beginning. Yes. Yeah.
0: Well, I I think the pandemic showed us that, you know, I mean, if you connect the dots with this, the pandemic showed us we are going towards this increasing reliance on digital services layers, whether it's getting food delivered, whether it's telehealth, teleeducation, you know, let's call it virtual education and so forth. So the reality is if you want a highly successful autonomous or semi-autonomous economy, the citizens in that economy must have machine-readable identity. So therefore you must have digitally You know, curated identity, you know, a paper identity document is no longer going to work in that scenario, but. There's so much debate about this, the civil rights of all of this and so forth. And, and, you know, in the meantime, we are having massive amounts of identity fraud and identity theft today because the identity systems are not robust enough to work in this digital space. But I wonder why there is still so much resistance when that trajectory is fairly clear. You know, if you're going to have AI-operated commerce and you're going to have an AI agent that's going to act on your behalf, it must be implied that the identity is your digital identity is bundled as a part of um you know that schema and and yet you know we we're, we're not seeming to make significant progress in markets like the UK and the US towards real digital identity yet
1: yeah, I mean the the reason is trust. There's a massive distrust of our institutions, um, which include the media, government, and technology companies. All of the all, all of the elements that are required to make um, some kind True. of digital identity system work. Now, whether that's you know a, a federated system, a self sovereign system, well, of sorts. Uh, I mean, we've seen what's happened with the um, eIDAS in Europe. Um, that is supposedly going to be an interoperable. Um, system of, they say self-sovereign, but it's it's not, of course. Um, it's much more centralized than that. Sorry, but, can you uh, unpack
2: that for American listeners? Because I didn't get that. It's IDAS.
1: Yeah, IDAS. So it goes under a couple of different names, but um, it's just been signed off, actually. So the European Is it Union an
2: identity has, scheme it's in, in
1: wallet. Yeah, it's digital wallet. It's digital identity wallet, exactly. And mm-hmm. each country will have its own partners that make this possible. And there is a hope that it will be interoperable across the countries, the member states of the European Union. But it's very tricky um, to put together. And I did Mm -hmm. do a podcast with Andy Tobin from Gen Digital on this, which is an absolute masterclass on explaining, you know, the potential pitfalls of it, but Mm -hmm. also the technicalities around how it's going to work. The problem is, and Everybody I have spoken to um, in and around the authentication or verification elements of digital identity say the same thing and I concur that there's massive mistrust of this. um, The way in which it has been talked about, the way in which um, it is expected that people will just take on these uh, digital wallets or their digital identities is particularly difficult in the UK because we have a a different historical context for this you know we've we've never had identity cards as you probably know you know we've 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 it's not it's nothing to do with europe it's very very different we've always had common law and it's very, it's a very different mentality so there is this um misnomer that uh, digital identity is a you know digital papers you know it is a, a digital identity card that you will have to show to the authorities and it hasn't been treated in a way as actually this is a way to give you access um, to all the um, things that you want to have access that are going to be valuable to you in a digital or virtual world, um, so there's a lot of mistrust, and that hasn't been helped by the kind of people that are chosen to be ambassadors of <laughs> this sort of thing. The, the kinds of politicians but, that go and yeah, say, true, "You need a digital true. identity."
2: But <laughs> government plays such a little role in the internet, where you know government intrudes in in life in many in many ways in real life, uh, and you have to you have to deal with it whether you want to or not. On the internet, there's this mythology that you can live a a life free of government, right? That's the kind of John Perry Barlow, uh, the original notion. We don't have to drag our 19th century governments into the internet with us. That's untrue, of course. Government does lurk in the background, but we don't interact with it too much. The people we interact with or the entities that we interact with are private businesses. And the reason we don't trust them is because they don't treat us fairly. And this has happened again and again and, right, again, and again and again and again and again and again. Every single year, there are more data breaches than the previous year. So these companies mine us for data; they mine us for our identity, which has value. We know that you know, we don't; we're not able to place a monetary value on it. Although Facebook certainly is capable of putting a monetary value on a user's identity. Uh, we don't know that information. So there's information asymmetry at work where people feel disempowered because they they know they're operating at a disadvantage relative to the companies. And then the companies are reckless with our data. They're um yeah, they' just there's a reckless disregard yeah. for managing it. They mm-hmm. underinvest in security. they underinvest in security because it costs them money. I mean, it's that simple. it's a it's a cost center. Uh, and so there isn't really any huge incentive for them to take care to protect our data. And as a result, people have been burned, and not just yourself almost everybody's had some incident of identity mm-hmm. loss, identity theft, or someone stealing a credit card or something else, you know, stealing a password. Uh, so I think people are smart and I think people are right to be suspicious. And I think they're right to be cautious and untrusting. I think that's the appropriate stance toward the internet because the internet has slapped us around and we've all learned through hard experience not to trust it. But at the end of the day, identity only works If you trust the other party and trust what they're representing. And if you don't trust the other party, then you've got a challenge. You've either got to deal with that in a decentralized way or you've got to trust some intermediary, which tends to be a government. So we come right back full circle to the situation. Yeah, I
0: don't, I don't. You know, I mean, we've got to solve the trust problem in society anyway, right? That's really what this comes down to is we've got to, and I think there's going to be a push for some sort of radical transparency emerging over the next few years, that that government really needs to be accountable to the people, that the economy needs to function for the benefit of all people. You know, we've talked about this repeatedly, Rob, but yeah. I do think when it comes to identity, this is this is the problem is you can't have trusted identity without there being consistent census amongst government and banks and healthcare providers and so forth, that you are who you say you are. Um, So that needs some sort of, you know, those organizations have authority because of the roles that they have in our society. Now, while there is distrust of that, the the reality is there is no replacement mechanism for that. You can't have um, fully self-sovereign identity Um, you know, where you say, I am who I say I am. And then someone else says, no, I'm who they say they are. You know, um, you can't have that without some authority coming into the mix and saying, you know, we can verify that this individual is and, um, you know, that uh, you could try, you know, friend recommendations, stuff like that. It's never going to be as good as a bank or a hospital Mm -hmm. or a a government saying, yeah, that is Tracy Follows, you know, and we can Mm -hmm. we can confirm that. So, um, I don't think there's any solution to the identity problem without the inclusion of government. You can have some mechanisms for elements of transparency and how that happens. But, for example, I don't think, you know, I've thought for a long time what's crazy about the banking system or, you know, the healthcare system is that if I go to a new bank, I have to give them all of my identity information from scratch. That doesn't make any sense. I go to a new healthcare provider, I've got to give them all of my medical history again, from scratch, you know, God forbid, if I forget some of the details, you know, And so these are situations that, un, you know, are not um, uh, manageable in a highly autonomous environment where we're more reliant on digital, we need to have free flow of that information. I think individuals should have some control of it. But Tracy, in terms of this
2: well, you just said a lot of stuff that needs to get okay. unpacked. So, yeah, well, you're... I, also
0: was gonna, I was just going to put this back on to, to Tracy. Is that okay? Go for it.
2: it is uh, is where you're coming from is you're, you're arguing for the inevitable centralization of identity. And I think that's highly contestable. Well, this
0: is, this is, this is what we need to hash out. So Tracy, you know, um, I mean, that's my view yeah. that mm. we need, um, you know, need an element of centralization with individuals controlling how their um, identity is passed. But, you know, I- is there realistically other solutions outside of that, that could build, you know, identity scheme that's, that's, widespread, that can reach 100% of the population? Because I get you could do it in parcels, but and you could decentralize some of it, but I don't necessarily see that getting to broad acceptance Yeah, either.
1: I mean, I think I started off on the journey thinking it's all about self-sovereign. Oh, this is this is obvious. We have to have uh, total control, which is why I was asking the question, you know, can, you pers- can your personal identity survive technology? We have to have our own autonomy. And actually, I was feeling like we were moving into a world where everything's autonomous anonymous um except for me <laughs> um and this was a, a real um issue and as i spoke to more people and did more research and worked through all this i was thinking <laughs> i came around a little bit to dave birch's thought about you know the last thing you want to do is give the control of identity to to the person because you know they're going to lose it um, they're going to it's going to get mistreated it's going to be a nightmare um And so, obviously, I know know his point of view is more about, you know, having the banks have control of this. And there is some trust um, left in the banks. Of course, the debanking scandal in the UK hasn't particularly helped that. But there is trust in in the administration of identity, of course, uh, within the banking sector. So, I would say something like it feels closer to like the Nordics, perhaps, than... The um, bank
0: ID in the Nordics. Yeah, you know,
1: know, than the European um, system, which is very much government issued um and and that's where it starts the wallet is government issued the you know everything starts there um but i don't know the answer to it i'll be absolutely honest and this is why i continue to explore it i mean my hope is and it's one of the reasons i started the podcast is you can just get more of a conversation going with you know the general public if you can get more people engaged in this so that they can even if they haven't got a defined point of view they they certainly know more about the various systems the various options who's doing what across the world what's working what isn't um now not everybody wants to have a conversation about digital identity but there's an awful lot of narrative that's Anti digital identity at the minute. I mean, it's swirling around on on, on social media all of the time. And what do that you mean is,
2: by anti digital identity? What does that what mean?
1: You, uh, over my dead body will I ever take have a digital identity? I don't want a digital identity. Digital identity is the access to CBDCs. Everything about all of this is evil. Um, so that's the 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 kind of the narrative that goes on. Now, my but, point. Of but view, we
2: already have digital identity. We don't just have one. We have yeah, hundreds. Co- the problem course, is but, we don't own any of them they're owned by private corporations that have been scraping data off the web and trace tracking us and following us so th- this is the this is an education challenge then you know the the, the fact that's is te- people need to reclaim true. their identities yeah
1: technically true but as a, p- the point of perception it isn't perceived like that it's be- perceived as if um uh, an individual has some element of control over that they sign terms of service you know if they don't but we've all seen that how it, how it operates so my my view is somewhere in between i'm trying to work out you know i'm not anti digital identity um and i'm i'm not pro any method of digital identity, no matter what the consequences. I'm trying to weave my way through this and understand it and work out You know, what, Tracy, what do I think is the best method?
2: Tracy, tell us what your methodology is. So you focus on identity. You've done considerable amount of work thinking about it. How do you arrive at your conclusions? You said that you started out thinking about self-sovereign identity and oh. you've evolved your thinking a little bit. So uh, tell us a little bit about methodology because our audience cares about that. They want to understand how people construct the notion of the future.
1: Yeah, so my methodology would be the same. I mean, I look at the future of pretty much everything, but identity is just a particular um, passion project, I suppose. Um, I come from a background where I worked in advertising and media and marketing for over 20 years. I'm very used to talking to real people about stuff. <laughs> um, so less about models and um analytics and more to do with, you know, ethnography, consumer insights, talking to real people about what their uh, their their ideas are about the world, both in terms of how it is and also what it's going to be like or what it ought to be like. Now-
2: Do you do focus groups or do you do, how do you do this conversation? I
1: never do focus groups. I used to have to do them when I worked in advertising many, many moons ago, but I never liked focus groups. I like in-depth interviews. Um, so doing an in-depth interview with someone for 2 hours reveals a lot <laughs> um much more than that perhaps they they really want to um reveal but so for example when i'm doing particular work like i did a big project for google on a very innovative um technology product and i went and talked to a lot of innovative people in in the gen z demographic if you like and did in-depth interviews but i always do them in pairs i always do in-depth interviews in pairs because i find if you bring a friend along or someone who kind of knows you that will keep you true it's quite difficult to lie um in front of your friend partner your parent this is great so you're now getting
2: into the performance of self and that's another topic related to your book so we should definitely bookmark that for after the break now we're coming up on the break, um, so let's save some of this for the second half of our show. But before we go to the break, we always like to get to know our guests a little bit better, and and to do that, Brett is going to ask you a series of quick questions, uh, just uh, very short answers here. Um, uh, he'll ask you quick questions about how you formed your identity as a as a futurist. So uh, take it away, Brett. Okay, here is
0: the quick fire round. Tracy, what was the first science fiction you remember being exposed to on TV, books, movies?
1: Oh, Star Trek.
0: Cool. What technology do you think has most changed humanity?
1: Um, The iPhone.
0: Very cool. Um, Is there a futurist or an entrepreneur that has particularly influenced you and why? Or a thought leader?
1: Yeah. Marshall McLuhan.
0: (laughs) Really good choice. Very interesting. When did you know you wanted to be a futurist?
1: In um, 2012.
0: (laughs) Very cool. And is there a science fiction story or something that is representative of the future you hope for?
1: I think it's Ted Chang, the stories of your life.
0: Oh, that was what the movie Arrival was based on, right?
1: Yes, very Very profound.
0: Awesome. (laughs) All right. Well, you're listening to The Futurist with Tracy Follows, a futurist that specializes in the future of identity, amongst other things. We'll be right back after this break. Provoked Media is proud to sponsor, produce, and support The Futurist podcast. Provoke.fm is a global podcast network and content creation company with the world's leading fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. And of course, it's spin off podcasts, Breaking Banks Europe, Breaking Banks Asia Pacific, and the FinTech Five. But we also produce the official Finnovate podcast, Tech on Reg, Emerge Everywhere, the podcast of the Financial Health Network, and Next Gen Banker. For information about all our podcasts, go to provoke.fm or check out Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show. Hey,
2: welcome back. You're listening to The Futurists. I'm Rob Tercik, and I'm joined by my co-host, Brett King. Hey, hey. And this week, our guest is Tracy Follows. And Tracy is the author of The Future of You. She also runs a podcast by that name, uh, The Future of You, where she talks about identity and the future of identity. And now we've had a kind of interesting conversation in the first half. I think it's important for people to understand that identity has been a core concept to modern government uh, for more than a hundred years. And we tend to forget that the reason we have passports in the first place, uh, which we didn't always have, the reason we have passports is because of social security systems. Uh, when governments started issuing benefits to citizens, they had to they had to have a way to differentiate between who's a citizen and who isn't.
0: Well, you did passports. need papers after the Second World War to travel internationally, though, as well. So that sure. was yeah, no, this you
2: predates know. all that. This is from yeah, the eighteen seventies and the introduction of social services. But the point is that uh, government started to see the need to issue identity, and this is such an interesting historical concept to my mind because you wonder in the what did people do for identity before that? And identity was where you were from, right? If you think about it today, uh, even today in the English language, there are an awful lot of names, last names, that tell you about who people are or where they're from, like place names or, uh, or, or, or names like you know baker or butcher that were like, literally a profession. That was how you differentiated people. Uh, so identity was something you did or a place that you were from. Today, of course, our identities are issued by governments, so they do pertain to the place that we're from, and they also give you access to certain privileges. They give you access to certain government benefits or the privilege like, say, driving an automobile, uh, a driver's license. So there's this functional aspect to identity. But identity changed and with the advent of ma- ma- mass media, and then the rise of mass media in the 20th century gives a new way to construct identity, which is not necessarily about where you're from, or what you do for a living, but it became what you're about or what you desire, and people could purchase an identity. And we do that today when we wear a you know a shirt with a polo horse on it, or a shirt with some kind of uh, you know some kind of band or music on it. We're telling the world something about ourselves. We're branding ourselves. Effectively, we're consuming identity. Tracy, how do you see all those different uh, versions of identity? And I know you touch on all of those in your book in some fashion or another. How do you see those evolving in the context of digital media?
1: I think the biggest um transformation that we're now looking at I mean if you you, you think about the 60s and 70s and you're talking really about sort of self image and using uh, brands to um attach one's self image to something of status and that was obviously you know in, in high sort of consumerism sort of uh worlds uh, that that was how we effectively communicated our identity the thing that's bothering me now is as we move into the digital virtual worlds is that they are plural and therefore our identity is becoming plural Um, mm. and I've been writing for a while now about how it's the death of authenticity and people find this a very difficult concept because in the west we're very wedded to the concept of authenticity if I go and research and talk to People in Asia, it's, they're not wedded to that at all. It doesn't exist, and there's much more of fluidity about identity. And identity is something that uh, that builds over time. It's it builds over your lifetime. You you yourself are every person you've ever met and everything that's ever happened to you. Whereas in the West, do you feel that identity
2: ooh. is fixed, or do you do you personally feel that identity is something that evolves, I, that is fluid? I, do,
1: I think it does evolve. I don't think it's fixed. Um, I don't think it's given as a as a divine uh, gift, if you like from the creator which is how we tend to think of it in the west um, but it's not to say that i think it's illusory either there is something at the core but we have i think the conclusion i've come to is that we have multiple selves but we haven't ever really come to um, come to acknowledge that or we won't acknowledge that in the west and the more we won't acknowledge that in the west the more difficult it's going to be for us to exist in these pl- in the plurality of the these multiple worlds
2: It's a very hotly contested topic here in the United States. Right now, uh, it's becoming a political issue, specifically the idea of identity politics and the idea that people can choose their own identity. I'm referring specifically to gender identity and in some cases, race identity, um, where people uh, get to choose the attributes that they want to represent as their identity. Uh, Some people fiercely resist this notion. It seems to me the essence of liberty in the sense of like, sure, I can define myself however I wish to define Um, but other That's people freedom, want right? to want to suppress that, and they want to stop it and prevent it, and so forth. Uh, it does seem to me. This is multiplying or increasing. It's uh, it, it. It seems to me that you're starting to see more and more people exercise that ability and experiment with identity and try on different identities. And it,
0: I, I wonder though if it is increasing or if it's just becoming more acceptable. I, you know, I wonder whether people felt like this for for decades oh, in the probably. past and, yeah, and yeah, weren't yeah. able to express that because of fear of how it would be uh, um, you know represented in the community. Let's let our guest handle that. this a great question Uh, go for it
1: tracy i actually think it's a bit of both because people would um explore alternative identities in virtual games or play games in order to do that so they could take on different roles that were different to the the uh the role the major role they had in real life if you like Mm -hmm. um (laughs) that people expected them to play but now what we're seeing is with social media and lots of other Uh, media. Actually, it's more like we're now informing our real life identity by the ways in which we can experiment in virtual worlds or in the digital space. So rather than trying to make our physical uh, identity match where we might have fantasies in the digital world, <laughs> we're, we're actually letting them inform how we might change our physical, real self, if you like. And obviously, I'm using "real" in I'm doing air quotes. You can't see them, um, but um, but because they're all really, as we move forward into the future, they're all really our true selves, and that's the. They're just different types of roles we take on when we are uh, relating to different groups in different contexts.
2: In this way, social media and the web in general is a way for people to gently experiment um, and sometimes go down the rabbit hole, I guess, uh, in the search of identity. I noticed that in the 90s, when I was developing some of the early online games, that we would have a lot of players, a majority of players that were men and that were um, male. But when you looked at who was the characters that were being represented, there were a considerable number that were female. Like it was definitely disproportional, right? So people were gender bending, even then using a game as a, as a sort of like a, a gentle way to experiment with uh, being a different gender. You might wonder why, but one of the reasons why is if there's a dearth of women, you get a lot more attention if you're a female character from the other players. Mm-hmm. So there's an immediate social <laughs> reward. Mm-hmm. And this is why I say identity only exists in the context of other people. It's relational, right? So it's yeah, always in relationship to something else. And there's a transactional element to it as well. Now, the transactional element has been taken, I think, to a dark place by a surveillance capitalism. Uh, Tracy, how do you feel about surveillance capitalism? Because I know, you know, being in, in the UK, um, you're kind of exposed to what's happening in the EU. but you're also, you know, you're in the UK where there's quite a different political view on things. Um, here in the United States, it's quite evident that our government's not going to regulate uh, the, com- the tech companies We're, we seem to be incapable of passing legislation in general and certainly when it comes to crafting well, we'll, we'll they will regulate where they
0: get permission from the tech companies to regulate
2: yeah they'll let the <laughs> they'll let the tech companies write their own regulations sure that <laughs> that they're happy to do um for the for a big enough check right if you if you <laughs> exactly if you exactly campaign. but in Europe they're making a concerted effort to actually write um you know uh, thoughtful legislation now i don't know if it's working or not i think you could say and G, G, uh, GDPR has been a disaster in some respects. Um, but in the UK, you're sort of perched right there on the periphery of Europe. So tell me what your perspective is uh, <laughs> about these attempts to regulate. Uh, yeah, the so with GDPR,
1: When GDPR came out, um, we were still in the EU then, so um, everybody had to like, you know, get rid of their email databases or upgrade them or get in touch with them. So everybody did that. I don't really think it's made a a huge amount of difference to be act, to be honest. Uh, But now we sit outside of the EU, and the one thing I have noticed of the last eighteen months. Um, particularly is facial recognition, obviously, you you know, you mentioned it at the beginning, but um, but there's a particular move now towards facial recognition, which is not just used by, you know, the public sector, like the police, but is actually used in commercial premises by um, individual, smaller, even uh, commercial organisations now. So I can't remember the name of the guy, Face... I think the guy who owned Gordon's, the wine bar, and got fed up of um, people, you know, stealing stuff in there, um, created, I think it's called Face Watch. And now that's really big. Um, That's used in a lot of uh, retail premises now. And so the, the newspaper, as we see, so much of the time, the media companies and the technology companies working in concert. You know, in the UK at the minute, the big thing is there's so much shoplifting and so much abuse of um, staff in stores that we have to have facial recognition in every single store all the time. So, you know, who's coming into this store? We have to monitor. And I find it really frightening, honestly. Um, and I think a lot of people do. We, we are, and you know, we've got a lot of cameras in the UK. Um We've got yeah. a lot of surveillance. And We've got cameras on our cars. We've got cameras on our being. We've got cameras everywhere. Um, cameras and in
0: it, phones, even.
2: Of
1: course, <laughs> of course, yes. And our door. Yeah, but when it
2: comes to CCTV density, the UK definitely is one of the world that oh, London love CCTV. in particular is riddled with cameras.
1: It's never been running when you need it. Like when something's happened and you want to go back, funnily enough, it's never, it's never got the solution for you. So at the minute, I think that's the big issue in the UK. It's, it's, and we did have a biometrics commissioner and, you know, it was just one guy, and you can wonder how effective that was. But actually, I don't think the government particularly wanted him to be in that position. And actually, a couple of months ago, he resigned. And so we don't have the biometrics commissioner anymore. So you know, who is setting the standards for how yeah. the facial recognition cameras should be operating and where they work and and where the data is collected and what's done with them? Uh, as far as I know, nobody. Uh, so, so you're, not, you're
2: actually... Because you're talking about the accumulation of even more data under surveillance capitalism, because now we're going from just tracking my behavior to collecting my biometric, you know, my attributes that I, I can't change. Those are those are given to me. And so um, that seems like kind of a scary thought. A moment ago, we had a conversation before the break uh, about centralized versus decentralized identity. And it's quite clear that the companies we're talking about right now, in surveillance capitalism, are highly centralized and they're accumulating tremendously mm-hmm. large databases about identities for billions of people. So that's centralization. And that's viewed as a great evil by the people who are promoting web three. Web three is the decentralized web, not the 3D web that we sometimes talk about on the show, things Mm -hmm. like the metaverse and so on, but the decentralized web where we use blockchain technology in order to remove the middleman and and enable people to transact directly uh, one-to-one and sometimes anonymously so that you don't have to give up identity uh, or any other details about yourself if you don't wish to. Now this is hotly controversial as well. Uh, Web3 is sort of one of those industries that so far has been in a stuck in a perpetual dawn. The sun has never fully risen on it. Uh, in theory, it makes a great deal of sense. In practice, it hasn't worked. And there are many, many reasons why that's the case. It's a fairly complex undertaking, but it would also require rebuilding the infrastructure of the web to some extent. Um, because the cloud-based web, which is Web 2.0, is highly centralized again. So it's it sort of all roads lead back to centralization. It's almost like a gravitational force field that's hard to, hard to escape. That said, I want to believe that Web 3.0 is possible, and I want to have faith that decentralized identity will be a cornerstone of Web 3.0. You seem to be a little skeptical about it. I know Brett is. Uh, tell me a little bit about how you arrived at that, um, uh, your doubts about decentralized decentralized identity.
1: But, well, I think you've just, you just hit on it. I think in theory, it sounds fantastic, and it is the theory that I'd sign up to, but I haven't seen it work in practice, and, that, and that's the thing. And I don't know if that's because of a blockchain um, or whether, you know, you don't even need blockchain, do you, for Web3 necessarily, right. you can, yeah. or decentralized systems. You can build one without that. I just don't, I think it's hard to scale. That's what I think. It's hard to scale. And obviously centralization has a kind of, you know, a, a perpetual motion of its of its own. <laughs> I mean, it, it all aggregates towards one locus of control. And that's what happens and it happens very quickly.
2: Well, and the other issue is that you're um you have responsibility. So if we decentralize, the responsibility is going to land on your shoulders as an individual. You'll you'll have to maintain your own identity. And frankly, it is a lot of work, right? Even handling it. Highly a, technical too. A crypto wallet, yeah, it requires a degree of of mastery that a lot of people haven't got. And there's no one to turn to. There's no help desk. You can't go uh, get someone to save you if you've lost your identity or if you've lost your wallet or if your wallet gets hacked. And the sense that I get is given the choice between centralized control and decentralized autonomy, many people are going to opt for centralized control because it's easier and they're lazier. I don't know if that's a fair statement. Maybe I'm being too harsh and judgmental there. I think it's well.
1: Fair. That's bad, and That's Dave Birch's point as well. You know, yeah, people yeah. aren't capable, and they're not interested enough either. And partly because they're not, the reason they're not capable is because they're not interested enough in the details. You know, they have busy lives. You know, so he 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 thinks. You know, well, we need a custodial wallet now. Who who is the custodian? Is the question.
2: <laughs> well, then we're right back to where we are right now. With yeah. Exactly locked out of the United well, States. let's let's take the let's custodian. Does have yeah. time to have an interview with them.
0: Right? exactly. Let's take a slightly different approach. You know, we are getting to near the end of the show. So, you know, we do like to get futuristic a bit sci-fi here. Um, you know, there's other issues coming into play here. Um, you know, should uh, autonomous algorithms and robots and things like that, will they require a form of identity um, to be able to operate legally in our environment? Things like this. So I want you to take us 20 or 30 years out, Tracy, and tell us what do you think identity infrastructure will look like in <laughs> this sort of autonomous world of the future?
1: Uh, well, um, I certainly have been wondering what will be the biometric of the future. And I have written before about how it might be our brain data. So if our brain data, if neurotechnology that is becoming embedded in everything from cycle helmets to AirPods, to what what, AirPods, whatever, is it going to be neurotechnology—the reading and anal- analyzing of our brain data—that's actually going to be the biometric? And and I do wonder. I mean, that's incredibly valuable. I mean, people have been talking, obviously, about the the, the value in our DNA going for, forward for all sorts of reasons. But I wonder if actually it's not that physicality; it's something more co- cognitive, and it is our brain data. So, I do wonder about. I do wonder about that. Um, I think um, in terms of the system, who, who I think we'll have, you see, I, I think there'll be uh, um, um, a variety of systems, a variety of digital identity systems, if you like. And we'll, we may or may not have them being interoperable. Who knows? But I don't think everybody is going to choose the same sort of solution. So it's interesting. We've been talking about Web three versus something more centralized versus something else. And you've got the likes of Worldcoin, World Identity in there. You know, with the scanning of their eyeballs and um, keeping the uh, keeping all of that on device rather than the cla- all of this. And I wonder if we are going to have a variety of different systems, and you'll either opt in or opt out of of various ones. Um,
2: This is not the week to bring up one of Sam Altman's (laughs) projects right now. I think his credibility just took a massive hit this last weekend.
1: Yeah, exactly. Who knows what will happen tomorrow. Um, And now what else? obviously there is the whole area of personal AI, AI agents, and you're quite right. At the minute, we think of persons and things as very, very separate. But I think once we have an identity for each of these things, I mean, this is one of the key questions. These personal AI agents, whatever we end up calling them in the future, are they separate to the self? Are they they almost a tool uh a thing that is separate itself an, to an, the self, or extension, the an self. extension to the yeah, self exactly. and i am i've been uh, for a long us. time yeah for a long time been thinking they're an extension to the self um but we aren't ready for that We people can't quite. I'll tell you who is ready
2: for it is Microsoft. Microsoft has had Google envy for twenty years, and they have a really burning desire to displace Google. They can't do it with search data. They've been unable to crack Google's stronghold in search, and that's why they're going so hard for personal chatbots and ultimately AI agents. Because frankly. ChatGPT extracts an enormous amount of personal data from you. When you have a conversation with a bot, you're completely unconscious. You know We don't monitor what we're saying when we're talking to another person. We certainly don't monitor what we're saying when we talk to a chat bot, but the chatbot knows everything. It records everything. It starts to understand us better than we understand ourselves. And this to me is a very frightening aspect of artificial intelligence. Because we're going to unconsciously confer upon a company like Microsoft that owes us nothing, has no responsibility towards us. It is not a government. It's not something you know where there's a social obligation to watch out for us. But we're going to confer upon it an enormous amount of information, more than we realize about ourselves. So I think we're going to reveal ourselves unconsciously to these agents. They will be the most seductive conversation we've ever had. Yeah, you know, they already are incredibly charming and fun to play with.
0: Yeah. Well, well and, they and their- they'll know us so well that, that yeah. it'll be like having a best friend. You know, I, I wrote about this in yeah. Augmented in 2015, talking about the fact that, you know, the movie Her, you know, where uh-huh. you find uh-huh. the guy falling in love with his personal AI, you know, th- this is th- this is not going to be, you know, you, you see... Uh, people marrying Hatsune Miku, the virtual mm-hmm. uh, pop star character and stuff like this. I think we have to get used to the fact that, you know, having a competing intelligence that can mold itself to us is, is going to have some pretty interesting uh, implications in society. But there's also the empowerment angle of this extension of self that you talk about, Tracy, being able to have an AI that is on mission for you and dedicated to you in terms of your purpose and and you know and so forth, mm. in, in interacting with these other parties, the digital world and so forth, it is in many ways the self-sovereign element, right? Mm. Is that your yes. AI can control how you interact with these different systems. And um, that's where I think Robert, even if Microsoft is to go down that route of doing that. The interoperability of your AI with other systems outside of Microsoft Sphere is going to determine largely its success as an agent. Right. And so, I don't think they can keep you on the their stack, you know. In, in mm. that respect, you know, um, I, I just I don't see. Well, how that that's would work, uh, that's going to it
2: remains to be seen, right? But well, one of the problems we have is we now know because of the antitrust suit how much Google actually influences search results to, oh, to yeah. you know, oh, yeah. to sort of uh, influence your behavior. We've also seen that with um, with those talking speakers. Remember, you know, Alexa, the first round of like intelligent devices, I suppose, just ten years ago. Um, You know, if you search for uh, something like uh, AA batteries on on Amazon, you'll get more than a million results. But if you ask Alexa, like if you talk to an Alexa speaker to order you batteries on Amazon, it gives you a choice of exactly one, the Amazon branded. Uh, We're seeing this also with with TikTok, (laughs) right? The fear that these systems can subtly influence us. And there's some evidence that that's actually happening with TikTok now. Uh, So my concern is we start to reveal ourselves to our chatbots consciously or unconsciously. Sure, they work on our behalf and they, they do good things for us, so that's nice. It seems like an obedient servant, someone we can trust, and that will lull us into a situation where we start to take them for granted. That complacency is the weak spot. The systems are never complacent. They're constantly observing us, they're constantly measuring, and they'll be probing gently to see if they can start to influence behavior. I think that's almost an economic certainty because of the nature of the economics of the web and the fact that the governments are
0: not yet in any meaningful way regulating artificial intelligence. Well, the, the, this would require a set of standards in respect to identity and autonomy and the use of agents that, yeah, again, um, we're not gonna see this come out of the States. We've talked about this, Robert, you know, it's in it, the free market environment. of, of right? regulating, yeah. 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 So, so it may be that Europe, you know, um, or China, is the place that really puts um, some some regulation in in place for this, but um, you know that that's an interesting scenario. Um, Tracy, uh, maybe just to, to wrap this up, um, if if you look around the world today, and you've described a few different jurisdictions, um, but who do you think might lead on um, reinventing? the way we think about identity for the future or, or adapting identity to this sort of smart world?
1: I'm not sure they're even here yet. I'm not sure they quite exist yet, but this is the way I think about it. The, the identity has changed in that it used to be two dimensions. There was the psychology of the self and the um, physicality of the, of the self, the biology of the self. And now we have a third dimension, which is the technology of the self. And that's is the part of us which isn't in control by us. So if I wanna download a language, I can do so maybe in the future, but there's gonna be some uh, payment for that. And there's, as you have just pointed out, there's going to be some nudging around that. If I don't behave in one way, Maybe you stop me accessing the language I want tomorrow. You know, so these kinds of exchanges are gonna happen. I don't think there's any system or any jurisdiction jurisdiction that is quite prepared for that kind of identity of the future. So um I, I don't think it's here yet. And I think this is why it's difficult. It's it's interesting to explore it, but it's difficult to come down on any so side. We,
0: we don't up. really have a apparent solution. But we have a clear problem where current identity mechanisms will not work in the future. I mean, that's the clear message, right?
1: Mm, yeah, I, th- I think that's fair. I think that's this fair. This is
0: a
2: powerful closing argument. I almost feel like it's the beginning of a whole, a whole <laughs> round of conversation that could follow. Tracy, it's been a great pleasure having you on the show. Uh, tell us about your book, uh, the name of the book, and tell us where we can find you on the web. Where can our listeners learn more about your work?
1: Sure. The book's The Future of You and all of my work um, around that and other subjects is at www.tracyfollows.com where you can also contact Tracy me. Tracy with like an to. E. Tracy with an E, yes. And and follows with an O.
2: <laughs> right, your name is like a sentence, Tracy Fellows. I know. <laughs> you know
1: the, fir- the first time I went on Twitter, it was literally people thought, oh, Tracy follows. But who does she follow? So there you go. <laughs> she the follows the for,
0: futurists now, for Twitter. <laughs> yeah.
2: That's great. Well, well. Tracy Fowles, thank you very kindly for joining us on The Futurists this week. It's been a great pleasure to have you on the show. Interesting (laughs) to hear your thoughts about the future of identity. Thanks, folks who are listening, uh, we'll be back next week with another Futurist. I want to give a round of thanks. First to Brett King, my partner in crime here. Uh, Such a pleasure to be reunited with you after your journey. (laughs) And also to the team at Provoke Media that make this show possible. Kevin Hershon, our engineer. Elizabeth Severance, our producer. And the whole team at Provoke. And of course, I always love to thank our audience as well because you're the folks who make the show possible. Uh, we love getting feedback. We love getting suggestions and questions and topics and follow us on socials, let people know about the show. Uh, we really appreciate your support. And we continue to find new people to talk about the future because there's always more future. There's, they make more of it every single day. So it's an endless topic. It's a rich topic to mine. So we'll be back next week with another futurist. And until then, Brett, take it away until then we'll see you in the future future. (laughs) we can never get the timing on that no i
0: thought that worked well dude
2: well that's it for the futurists this week if you like the show we sure hope you did please subscribe and share it with people in your community and don't forget to leave us a five-star review that really helps other people find the show and you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter at, at Futurist Podcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future.